In my sophomore year of high school, uh, we, had, uh, we had a moment um, that really kind of changed the trajectory of my faith. Uh, I don't know about you, I do this often where I think back through some of these big milestones. Uh, this one in high school was when my mom, who had started experiencing some pretty severe stomach pain, uh, it just it wouldn't go away, it kept lingering, lingering, and finally she ended up in the hospital. Uh, and she was in there for a couple days, and we had a couple days where as a family, we were just anxious and stressed because we didn't know what was going on. We weren't quite sure what the problem is. Uh, and of course, in situations like that, you worry, and the doctors were worried too, that it, that it might be cancer. Uh, and so at that moment, um, I was confronted, I would really say, for the first time uh, with the idea that God had his own plans and purposes, and they might be different from mine. Uh, you know, up until that point, honestly, when I look back, I have to admit I spent most of my time not really thinking about that at all. Uh, to the extent I did think about it, uh, I, I was really thinking more about my plans, right? So I, I would make plans, uh, I would work to put them into to action, and I would only go to God when my plans ran into, you know, resistance or, or trouble. Then I would turn to God, then, then, I, would, then I would come to him and say, um, hey, can you, can you get me out of a bind here? Can you help me out? Can you bail me out? Um, but until that moment, I had never really been confronted with what I think is the question that is at the heart of the Christian life, which is, when push comes to shove, whose plan do I actually want for my life? You know, when, when, it, when it really gets down to it, when the stakes are high, whose will do I want to be done? Do I, do I actually want God's will to be done? Or really, would I rather just see my will be done? Do I really want to see God's plans and purposes accomplished if it means that mine are not? You know, for the first time in that moment, I really sensed God asking me, uh, look, you, you have placed your faith in me. You, you have turned to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but are you ready to submit your life to mine? Are you ready to submit your plans and your agenda to my plans and my agenda? As I say, I think this is the question that really gets at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, you know, it, it occurs to me that, that we often only think about that when we're in moments like that, when we're in a crisis. Uh, we don't think about it when our plan and God's plan seem to be pretty compatible Right when so long as God is doing pretty much what we want Him to do, we don't worry about it. Uh, but then, all of a sudden, when God's plans diverge sharply and dramatically from our own, you know, all of a sudden now we're caught off guard. We're caught unprepared, uh, and we're unprepared because we haven't spent time seeking God's will. We we haven't taken time to build up trust in His goodness and in His faithfulness. And so then, when those moments come, when His plan diverges, we, we are startled, we're panicked, and even maybe confused. We think, hey God, what, what's wrong? You, you, were, you were doing so great there, right? Now all of a sudden I don't know what you're up to. So today, I'd like to address that if we can. As we look ahead to a new year, I, I thought it would be an appropriate time to begin asking ourselves this all-important question. And then hopefully, by the end of the service, what I'd like us to do uh, is to sort of enter the new year by resubmitting ourselves to God's plan and his purposes together through communion. So open me with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, 
verses 1 through 13. So you can, I don't know if you use your phone, otherwise there's a pew Bible in front of you, maybe you brought your own. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, it's a story I'm guessing a lot of you know pretty well. It says this, 16 verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there still is the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, well, then send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Well, first and most basically, this story highlights the fact, quite simply, that God has his own plans and purposes. Just look back at those first few verses, if you would, and just Listen to the litany of things we find in the first, just the first three verses. Listen to what God says. I have rejected Saul as king. I am sending you to Jesse. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. I will show you what to do. You will anoint the one I indicate. Man, could the point be any more clear, any more obvious? The author wants us to see clearly as we possibly can that this is God's plan. It's not Samuel's plan. It's not Jesse's plan. It's not David's plan. This is God's plan. God is the one who has rejected Saul. God is the one who has decided to place David on the throne. And God is the one sending Samuel to anoint the new king. These are God's ideas. This is his agenda. He is the one putting them into motion. God, as it happens, has his own plans for David, for Israel, and ultimately for all creation. Uh, This is a basic point, I know, but it's a crucial point. Uh, And yet, I I think, you know, as I've thought about this, this is one of those things that is so easy to lose track of in the hustle of our everyday lives. And I think if we're not careful, 
More than that, if we're not intentional, we get this the wrong way around. Again, this is the realization I had in high school, that time I described here at the beginning. I I realized I had simply up to that point, I had just been making my own plans. Uh, I, I was making my plans, and then I treated God as though God were the power grid or a genie. Right, So I would turn to him, when I would make my plans, when my plans, when they met resistance, when they met trouble, then I would turn to God. God, help, I've made these plans. Uh, it turns out I don't have the ability to put them into action. I need some power. I'm trying to tap into the power grid, right? Or, or maybe uh, I, my plans have run into trouble. I've gotten myself in trouble. God, can you bail me out? I got into trouble. My plans were bad, right? Now God's my genie. Please, the right words, the right motions, maybe... God, you can help me out. Uh, I made a bad plan. I spent far more time, far more time, asking and begging God to make my plans a reality than I did seeking after his plans. I spent far more time trying to convince God to, to bend God's will to mine than I did asking God to conform my will to his. And the problem with this way of thinking, one of the problems is that it ignores one of the central revelations of Scripture, which is that God has his own purposes. God wants to invite us to partner with him in what he is doing. He's not sitting around twiddling his thumbs going, man, I I really hope Jay invites me to be part of his plan. God wants me to be part of his plan. He wants to invite us into what he is doing. Uh, Listen to how the EFCA says this in their statement of faith. This is our umbrella organization, the affiliation of churches to which we belong. If you go to their website, efca.org, and you you ask yourself, what does the EFCA believe? And you go to their statement of faith, this is the first thing you'll read. Point number one says this. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then it says this, Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Friends, that is the God we worship. That's the God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture from the first page until the last. He is a God with plans and purposes from eternity. First Samuel, we can see clearly that our God is a God with plans and purposes. But we can also see that those plans and purposes are good and wise. And, and maybe specifically this morning, I would emphasize they are better and wiser than human plans. Let me pull back a second from the, the passage we read and just give you a little bit wider context. Uh, I, I want to tell you two things about the guy who is king when this event we read about took place. If you go back a few chapters to 1 Samuel 9, you'll find that Saul had been anointed as the first king of Israel. And if you read 1 Samuel, you'll get the, the pretty distinct impression that Saul's chief qualification for kingship was his appearance. You know, specifically, people were very impressed with his height. You're actually told a couple times that, that Saul was about a head taller than average, and people found this very impressive. Uh, th- this uh, was a big deal because people looked at Saul and they thought, yeah, that is what a king is supposed to look like. Tall, handsome, strong. This Obviously, right, this guy will be a good king. Uh, and in fact, 
we kind of, Samuel emphasizes this point uh, when he anoints Saul. So you can imagine, you have all these people gathered around, they're here to see Samuel, uh, the prophet, anoint the first king, and as Samuel stands there and he, he pours the oil on Saul's head, he looks at the crowd gathered here, and he says, just in case you're tempted to forget, uh, here is the king you have chosen, the one that you have asked for, 1 Samuel 12, 13. That's the first thing I think it's important for us to know. Saul is the king that the people wanted. He's the one they asked for. This is their plan, is to put a guy like this in charge. The second thing it's good to know for context is that Saul, as a king, is a failure. And we find that out fairly quickly. If you fast forward just a few chapters to 1 Samuel 15, the chapter right before the one we just read, Saul disobeys God rather blatantly and dramatically, and as a result of that, God rejects Saul as the king. In fact, he sends Samuel to tell, them, to tell him that. Samuel says to the king, you have disobeyed God and God has rejected you. And then Samuel leaves and never speaks to Saul again to make the point, in God's eyes, you are not king anymore. In other words, in the previous six chapters, we get to watch this whole little scene unfold. We get to see Israel get the king that they choose. We get to see the king that human wisdom, that human planning selects. And then we get to watch almost right away as that king fails. And then that makes it all the more crazy that we get to the, the passage we just read. We get to 1 Samuel 16. Samuel goes up, he meets Jesse, and then he sees Jesse's first oldest son, and he immediately thinks what? Oh, this has to be the guy. I mean, just look at him. Look how tall he is, broad shoulders, handsome. This must be the guy the Lord has selected, right? And God has to go, no, 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 Samuel, Samuel. We just did this, right? We just tried out human wisdom and human planning, and it failed. It did not work. We are not going to do that again. This is not the one I have selected, and then famously, God tells Samuel, look, you, you guys, you human beings, you are so impressed by all of these outward things, so impressed by appearance and height, and these are not the things that I look at. You judge based on those things, I judge based on the heart. Now, in the end, David, of course, is far from perfect, both as a man and as a king, and yet... He is, nevertheless, the greatest and most important king of Israel. And maybe more importantly, it's from David's line. It's among his descendants that finally comes the Messiah, who will save the whole world from their sins. Now look, I think we can all admit that's not the plan you or I would have drawn up. It certainly wasn't the plan Jesse or Samuel or even David would have drawn up. It was God's plan. And it turned out to be both good and wise, better by far than anything human wisdom would have produced. Uh, I learned something, it's actually before I planned the sermon, I, it just came back to my mind. I learned something a couple weeks ago, just randomly, about Kirk Cousins, uh, the Vikings quarterback. I think we've got a picture of him here. Um, so I learned Kirk, why Kirk Cousins wears the number eight. Uh, to be honest, I'd never thought about it. Um, I mean, why would you, I suppose? And sometimes you just wear the number you're assigned. I know sometimes players 
request a number, but I, I, I've never known if he even requested it or if he just ended up with it. But it turns out he wears number eight on purpose. He has a reason for it. Uh, if you want to know this, I actually, I fact-checked for you. I'd heard this story, but I, I went out there and I found you can find videos of him talking about this online. There, some of them are pretty good, so that's maybe worth tracking down. Uh, but he, he tells a story of how he kind of, the, the, the strange path he took to being an NFL quarterback. And you have to say, if you were going to map out how to become an NFL quarterback, you would not map out the route he took. It starts his senior year of high school. He's, he's finally going to be the starting quarterback for his high school team. And he's got a plan. He thinks, all right, this is the year. I've been working for this. I'm going to be the starter. I'm going to have a great year. And the major programs will finally take notice. They'll recruit me. And that's how I'm going to get to a major football program for college. Well, instead, he gets injured on the first play of his senior year, and he misses the entire season. And he thinks that's it. Uh, and, and really, initially, he's right. No schools come calling. Nobody requests to have him play for their team in college. He gets no offers until the very last minute, for reasons, honestly, I find somewhat baffling, because this is not at all normal. Uh, Michigan State, a major Big Ten program, contacts him and says, you know what, we didn't really get to see you play but uh, we're willing to offer you a full-ride scholarship. No promises, no guarantee you'll even get to start, but if you want it, it's yours. And he said, well, I'll, I'll take it. Turned out that's a school he would have liked to go to anyway. So he gets to Michigan State, uh, and Michigan State, for their faith in him, they're rewarded. He plays quite well. He's not outstanding, but he's good. He's good enough that the consensus is, you know, this is a guy who could probably play in the NFL, uh, and so you can only imagine, you know, he's taking this odd course. Here he is on the eve of draft night, right? You can only imagine the sort of anxiety and tension and, and hope and excitement. I mean, getting drafted to the NFL is like winning a lottery ticket. It's, it's very statistically unlikely. But man, if it happens, you're probably going to make more money than, than, you're almost guaranteed to make more money than the rest of us will see in our entire lives, and so he's got all these things churning around. And so the night before the draft, his dad comes to him. He's raised in a Christian family. And his dad sits him down and says, I just want to read something to you. I know you're excited, you're nervous. So he sits him down and he reads to him the exact passage we just read together this morning. And he says, Kirk, I know you're excited. I know you're anxious. I know you're stressed out. I just wanted to read this to you because I wanted to remind you, I know that right now you've got plans and dreams that start on draft day tomorrow and go outward from there. And I'm sure a lot of them are wonderful and great. And he said, but I just, I wanted to remind you, God has plans for you too. And they may or they may not look anything like the plans that you have in your own head right now. But I just wanted to prepare you in the event that your dreams don't materialize, that God still has a plan. And it's probably the case that even though it doesn't look like yours, that his plan is better and wiser than your plan. As it turns out, of course, he does get drafted. Uh, fourth round, eighth quarterback overall, not probably the way he drew it up. And yet a few years later, he's starting quarterback for the Vikings and one of the highest paid players in NFL history. And he wears the number eight because David was the eighth son. It's a way of reminding himself, even when things don't go according to my plan, doesn't mean that God's plan isn't better and wiser than mine. You know, anytime God's plan diverges from our own, we are naturally going to feel disappointment. We're going to be confused. 
we are at times, depending on, on the, way, at the point where it diverges, we're going to be grieved. Grieved by the loss of our own dreams and our own plans. And like Kirk, when those moments come, we would be wise to be prepared to have a reminder ready that God's plans are good and wise and that he is always working to accomplish them, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand what he's doing. We need to remember that David would not have been Samuel or Jesse's first choice or second choice. He was their eighth choice. You know, when Samuel went to Jesse's house to draft the next king of Israel, Jesse didn't even bother bringing David into the room. But he was God's first choice. And he was the right choice. All right. So we've seen already that that our God, the God revealed in Scripture, is a God who has plans and purposes, and that his plans are wise and good. The next thing we can see in this passage is that God not only makes plans, he is constantly working to accomplish them. Again, we can see this all throughout the story, starting right away at the beginning. First few verses, God isn't just making plans, right? He isn't just sitting up in heaven, you know, he's not, he's not an armchair general thinking to himself, you know, what would be interesting to see happen here. God is active, right? Look again, he says, I have rejected Saul. He is sending Samuel. He has chosen the next king. Uh, when Samuel arrives and the sons of Jesse are brought before him, it is God saying, nope, 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 and eventually, yes, that's the guy, God is active from start to finish. And at the very end, if you look at verse 13, so so we have God active all the way through this key moment in time, but then we get this little indication at the end, David's anointed king, and God doesn't just take off, say, all right, you know, I'm going to take a break, go on vacation, we got the right king anointed. No, David's anointed as king, and it says what? From that day forward, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon David. Just a little note there from the author. Oh, by the way, God's not done. God is going to continue to be active and involved in the kingship of David from today until the very end. God is always constantly working to accomplish his purposes. Uh, I have a little tangent here, um, you know, because I've got a captive audience. Why not? Where are you going to go? This is why I personally have have tried in the past few years to steer away from using the word miracle. There's nothing wrong with the word. It's a good word. Um, The problem, as always, is are the the, the sort of meaning drift and the connotations it gives us over time. So the problem is, when I say the word miracle, mostly what you're going to picture in your mind are what? Strange and crazy things that seem to defy explanation— Things that defy the laws of nature, right? Water being turned into wine, the dead being raised, the sick being healed in an instant. And that's fine. Those are miraculous. Those are uh, certainly, there's good reason to believe God is actively involved in those situations. Here's the problem I have, though. The problem is, when we use that word, people start to think that God is only involved when we can't explain what's going on. And when we can't explain it, we go, well, God's not involved. We know why this happened. Well, I I reject that. And frankly, Scripture rejects that entire way of thinking. Uh, So I like talking about things like that as God's mighty deeds. Because he's got all kinds of other normal deeds, things that fly under the radar. I mean, think about this story, right? Look through, I've already listed them out like twice now. But all the different things God does... I mean, God is just micromanaging this particular situation, but none of it's inexplicable. 
None of it like defies the laws of nature. And yet God is intimately involved in every single aspect of it. God is involved at every level. Uh, God is always at work. Just because we can explain it doesn't mean he's not involved in it. God is always at work to accomplish his purposes. And in fact, uh, let me add one more note about that. Not only is God at work, one of the primary ways God works to accomplish his purposes, this story illustrates so beautifully, is through human beings. Through human beings. Look, I think we can acknowledge God could have easily just sent an angel if he wanted, right? He's got plenty of them at his disposal to Jesse and David. He could have said, hey, big news, Saul's out, David's in, you know, get ready. But he doesn't. God wants to work with and through Samuel, even when Samuel's making that difficult. And I think we have to admit, at the beginning, Samuel's making that a little bit difficult. Uh, To start with, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's a very human moment. I, you know, after Ohio State blew their lead last night, I can relate to Samuel's mood. Samuel's moping, right? We get to the beginning of the chapter, and he's moping. And God has to say to Samuel, hey, snap out of it. How long are you going to sulk? Fill your, fill your horn with oil, and let's get going. I got stuff to do, right? So he, first he's moping, and even then, when God tells him, hey, Samuel, I would like to involve you in the work that I am doing here, work that's, you know, pretty important. Uh, What is Samuel's response? He says, well, I don't know. I think Saul might be upset if I did this, right? And God has to give him another little pep talk here. Assure him. He says, hey, you're probably right. Saul would be upset if he knew you did this, but, you know, I'm God, so maybe trust that I know what I'm doing here, right? God really wants Samuel's partnership. He puts up with some, you know, annoying frustrations here just because he wants to work with and through Samuel. This is how God wants to work. Later, he wants to work through David. God chooses to work with and through us. Now, look, I know I make this point often. Um, so, so let me share with you why a little bit. I don't know, I was thinking about the, this week and... Uh, what I want to tell you is, is I have come to realize in my years in ministry now that, look, obviously I feel responsible to teach and proclaim all of God's word, but there are a few things, and this is one of them, that God has uniquely burdened me to share. And this is one. I just feel like this is one of the things going all the way back that God has really laid on my heart uh, to share with his people, with this church. Uh, and that is that our God chooses and delights to work with and through us. Uh, I know it's easy to grasp intellectually. I think most of us probably do. But I also am convinced that, that none of us really fully internalize this. I mean, this is one of the great mysteries of the cosmos, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, our, our sovereign God, for whom nothing is impossible, chooses over and over again to work through imperfect vessels. And not only chooses, by the way, according to Scripture, he delights to work with and through us. I mean, just imagine, here's the creator of the universe. He comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I would like you to play a key role in my eternal purposes to redeem a a people for myself and to put the world to rights. And Samuel says, I don't know, what if Saul gets upset? What? What? I mean, it's crazy, except for the fact that we can all relate to this. 
We can all relate to it. It's such a human response. And the truly amazing thing is that God doesn't just say, you know what, never mind. I'm just going to wash my hands of you and do it myself. God is patient and he is gracious and he works through Samuel anyway. God will later work powerfully through David, flawed and fallen and imperfect as he is, not because God can't do it on his own, but because he chooses and delights to work through us. And let me make one more observation in all fairness to Samuel. Samuel obviously at the time could not have comprehended the significance of what God was asking him to do in that moment. How how could he, right? There was no way that he could have possibly known um, just what was going to be involved here, that that he was going to anoint the guy who, who would be the progenitor of the house, of the ruling family that would one day give birth to the human being who would share the throne of heaven with Yahweh. That's that great image from from Revelation 5 that I love where John is looking at the throne of creation. He's like, man, one second I look at it and it's the ancient of days, it's Yahweh. The next next second it's the lamb who was slain together on the throne. There's, There's no way David or Samuel could have begun to comprehend or even imagine what God was going to begin with this moment. And yet God not only plans it, He accomplished it 2,000 years ago. It's already done. Today, Jesus sits on that throne, a descendant of David on the throne of heaven. There's no way he could have known what was going to happen. So here's what I feel burdened to share. God delights and chooses to work with and through us, and if we will submit ourselves to his plans and purposes, there is just no telling what God might do with our small acts of obedience and faithfulness. We will never know, like David, like Samuel, will never fully grasp, never be able to appreciate in the moment what God is going to do with our faithfulness. We'll never be able to see fully until eternity how our little part fits into God's eternal, glorious purposes. At best, and occasionally we catch a glimpse, but it's only ever a glimpse. And so mostly what you and I need to do day in and day out, and the the discipline of submitting ourselves to his will and his plans is simply to trust, to trust that our good and wise God has good and wise plans, to trust that he knows what he is doing. He does have good and wise plans. He is working to accomplish them, and he delights to work with and through us. That brings me to our take-home idea this morning, which is this. If our God has plans and purposes, if they are far better and wiser than our own plans, and they are, and if he delights to work with and through us to accomplish them, then we should submit ourselves to his plans and purposes. It's the only obvious thing to do. We should subordinate our plans and our desires to his plans and his desires. We should trust in him and in his wisdom and his goodness even when we can't see what he is up to. We should follow where Jesus leads. However we want to phrase it, that is, I think, at the heart of what it means to be part of God's covenant people. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to trust in God and in his good and wise plans and to do it because he has already proven himself to be better, his plans to be better and wiser than our own. Now, let me circle back to the start. 
and, and acknowledge that while this is easy to say, easy to grasp, I know at times it can be very, very hard, especially when the stakes are high. And when we come to those moments where our plans diverge sharply from God's, those can be difficult, painful, costly moments where we are going to need to remember, where we have to return to Scripture, we have to look at God's past faithfulness and remind ourselves that we do not always understand. We never see the fullness of God's plan, and yet we can trust, we are smart and wise to trust that his plans are good and his plans are wise. We need to remind ourselves occasionally that Good Friday didn't look very good until Resurrection Sunday but that didn't mean that it wasn't. Now, just as I don't want to mislead you about the hard parts, I also don't want to neglect the good news either. Look, I'll just tell you honestly, in my 39 years, I have demonstrated fully to my own satisfaction that I am not a reliable judge of what is best for me. I'm just not. I have made mistakes, lots of mistakes that I knew were mistakes at the time. I've also done a lot of other things that at the time I thought were pretty clever, that turned out to be foolish and self-destructive. And I have done this because I'm a human being. Uh, I, am, I have limited and imperfect knowledge, limited wisdom, limited power, and less goodness than I might wish. And so, friends, whether you know it or not, you are all in that boat with me. And so how wonderful, how great for us that we have an all-knowing, all-wise good and powerful God who is willing and glad to lead us down a much better path, a path that leads to life. There will be hard moments, but I promise you in the end there will be no doubt who has the better and wiser plan. And if we will submit ourselves to his plans, we never know, we never know how God might use his great and glorious purposes. I want to end just with a, sharing a little bit of family history that I kind of had. Uh, I had known this story a little bit, um, but when my parents, we were with my parents earlier this year, I was trying to get some clarification from my dad because I, I knew that, you know, there was a time when my dad and his family were, were sort of um, passive church attenders. They went, but it wasn't really important to them. And my dad said, yeah, when he was, a, when he was in grade school, uh, his family went to this Methodist church and it was an open secret in the family that they went because my grandmother's friends went. And that was just sort of what the society ladies did. They, they did a bunch of other things, but one of the things they did was that they volunteered at the Methodist church there in Chagrin Falls on Sunday. And so that's where my grandma went. And my dad said, you know, I, he, was, he was old enough at one point to realize that it was kind of this open joke that my grandma had been going to the church for years and years, but she'd never been in an actual service. You know, that's not why she was there. She was there to be with the other ladies, to be seen with them, and to, to volunteer with them. Well, one day, uh, one of my dad's friends invited him and the family to another little church in town, just a little Baptist church. Uh, and it's, it, it actually helps my point that I can't tell you what the name of the church is. I have no idea who the pastor was. Uh, and yet, this little Baptist church, my, my dad's family goes there. They sit in a service and I don't know what the passage was, I don't know what the sermon was about, but they heard the gospel in that service and it changed their lives. Just right away. Uh, my, my grandmother in particular just immediately turned a bunch of things in her own life, 
totally around, committed herself to Jesus Christ, and it set my dad on a trajectory that would lead him ultimately to seminary and to being a, a pastor for 30-some years. Uh, it changed what that whole family tree looks like, uh, my uncles, my cousins. Uh, and, you know, it's not to say that I wouldn't have ended up a pastor, that my brother wouldn't have ended up a missionary, that my, my cousins wouldn't have been believers if it weren't for that little church, for the ministry of that church, that unknown pastor, that unknown message. It's not to say God couldn't have still got us all there. He probably could have. Maybe he would have. But it is to say that that's how God chose to do it. And the amazing thing, the wonderful thing, is that I, I promise you, that church has no idea. I mean, there was a whole bunch of people, they sat in that church. My, my, my dad's family came and left, and they had no idea. They knew they visited one Sunday, but they didn't know that they altered the trajectory of an entire family tree for generations just for being faithful. Because when we submit our plans to God's plans and his purposes, they are so much greater, so much better, so much wiser. We have no idea how God might use that. Bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to begin by sitting in awe of your plans and purposes. God, it's just something I return to over and over as we look at your word, as we remind ourselves every Advent season. It's just not the plan we would have drawn up. It's not the plan anyone drew up. All of Jesus' peers, all of his contemporaries were expecting a, a general, a mighty warrior, a, uh, this great leader who, who would bring in military victories and conquests and who would restore the, this uh, political kingdom of Israel. And instead, they got a baby born in a manger. And yet, God, this plan that none of us would have made turned out to be so great and so wise and to accomplish so much more than we could have ever asked or imagined. God, you chose in that moment not just to deliver one people, but to deliver, to deliver all people from the power of sin and death forever. And God, we are, we are today the direct beneficiaries of that. So we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your wisdom. And I pray, Father, as we walk into this next new year, uh, as we encounter difficult and hard situations, especially, Father, help us to trust. Help us to look back on the goodness and wisdom of your work in our lives and in this world and to be encouraged. Uh, God, I pray that it would give us courage to be obedient, to be faithful, and to submit our will and our plans to yours. In your name we pray. Amen.